Turn with me to Colossians. We've just spent a month looking topically at the nativity, seeing how God all throughout Scripture was pointing to the birth of his Messiah, Jesus Christ. But most of the time on Sunday mornings, the preaching that takes place is what we call expositional preaching. Maybe you've heard that word before, expositional, but you don't really know what expositional preaching means. Well, here's what expositional preaching is. Expositional preaching, as you turn to Colossians, is the verse-by-verse study of entire books of the Bible to find the original intent of what the authors meant to say. We use many things to discover this. We use the grammar and language that the biblical authors used. We use the historical context to understand what they meant and what they intended. That's what expositional preaching is, and it's so important that we do that regularly as a church for several reasons. Number one, the Bible is the very Word of God, meaning the Bible has the full weight of authority that God himself has. Therefore, if the Bible is the very God-breathed, is what 1 Timothy 3.16 says, words of God, then we have the utmost importance to get God's word right. We do not have the luxury of asking, what does this verse mean to me? We have to ask, what does this verse mean to God? That's what matters. And then we respond to it. The second reason why we preach expositionally is because what we do on Sundays is meant to set the standard for what you all are doing throughout the week. Because we are studying entire books of the Bible verse by verse, we do that because that's also how you, on a daily basis, should be consuming God's Word. Instead of just reading random verses that are disjointed out of devotionals, you should be consistently spending time reading through entire letters and books of the Bible. Instead of worrying about reading the entire Bible in a year, focus on reading an entire book of the Bible to start. The way that God has communicated his word is the way that we should consume his word. And then third, finally, the reason why we preach expositionally at Graham Emanuel Baptist Church is because we believe that God's word is for everyone. When we preach topically in a non-expositional way, we are forced to try to create a sermon that is geared towards a certain kind of person. Young people, old people, men, women, women who think they're men, children, adults, children who think they're adults. We always have to try to gear a sermon towards a certain kind of person where God intends for us to always gear our sermons not according to the audience, but according to the author of what the author has said. Because when we let the Bible speak for itself, that's when the Bible speaks to everyone. Look around the room. We're an eclectic bunch. There are different kinds of people in this room, different ages, different demographics, different backgrounds. That is God's intention. God wants it to be that way. And I don't have the time, and we don't have time in this service for me every week to try to preach a passage specifically for every kind of person in the room. Praise the Lord, I don't need to, because God's word is sufficient for every person in the room. And God's spirit is powerful to convict using God's word for every person in the room. So the reason why we preach expositionally is also to unite different people in the church together as one church family. I say all that as you turn to Colossians because since it's been about six weeks 
that we've studied Colossians expositionally. As we look at this morning's passage, we're going to look at two verses this morning in Colossians chapter 3. But in order to properly study Colossians chapter 3, we have to understand how Colossians 3 verses 20 and 21 fits into the letter of Colossians as a whole. So let's review briefly. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. You can understand Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 as the purpose statement of Paul's letter. This is what he writes to them. He says, And so, from the day we heard, we is referring to Paul and his other partners in ministry, like Timothy. He says, from, Since the day we heard of the Colossians, is what he's saying, he says, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as, look at verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Acts chapter 19 verse 10 tells us that while Paul was on his second missionary journey, he was preaching in the hall of Tyrannus in a city called Ephesus. That's in a region called Asia Minor. Today, it's modern-day Turkey. But it says that while he was teaching in Ephesus, some of his other protégés were going about the region and planting churches in the nearby cities. Colossae was one of those churches. In fact, one of Paul's protégés, Epaphras, while Paul is teaching in Ephesus, Epaphras is going back to his hometown of Colossae to plant a church there, and that church plant was very successful, which is why the purpose statement that we see uh, in Colossians chapter 1, which by the way, uh, Colossians chapter 1, I believe it's verse 10, or I'm sorry, it's uh, verse 7, uh, you can see that on the screen, it says that Epaphras is the one who planted that church in Colossae. And this is why Paul's purpose statement to write into the Colossians was to accomplish two things. Number one, it was to encourage them to celebrate the fact that they have been filled with the knowledge of God. But the second point was more than that, to not just celebrate that they've been filled with the knowledge of God, but to teach them what to do with the knowledge of God, that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in a way that is pleasing and acceptable to him. That is the purpose statement of Paul writing to Colossians, to celebrate that they received knowledge of God and then to use that knowledge to walk in a manner worthy of him. That is going to set the bones. That's going to set the stage, the structure of the entire letter. In fact, Paul is going to use this purpose statement to divide his letter in half. The first half of Colossians all the way up to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 is going to be Paul talking about the knowledge that they received, the knowledge about who Christ is. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is the famous hymn to Christ. It's a paragraph describing the beauties and glory of who Jesus is, how he's not only sufficient for salvation, but he's also the very means on which we depend to live and grow as Christians. That's the first half of his letter. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Therefore... Based on everything that you've learned, based on everything that you've received of Christ, therefore, for the rest of his letter, he says in verse 6, just as you've received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Paul wants the Colossians to live 
in response to what they have learned. The climax of Colossians is found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul's been talking about how we're meant to depend on Christ and how we've been baptized in Christ and how we're supposed to put our faith in Christ on a daily basis, how we shouldn't put our faith in worldly philosophies or rituals or legalism. And it all culminates to the mountaintop, the big idea of his letter in Colossians 3.17, where Paul says that whatever you do, 3.17, whatever you do in word or in deed to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Or another way of putting it is to do everything in the name of Jesus as Lord or master of your life, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's the top of the mountain. That's the big idea of his letter. Meaning that as we get ready to end our time in Colossians, we'll soon be finished with our expositional series in this letter. The remainder of the letter is Paul giving specific applications. Just like a preacher will end a sermon with application, Paul is ending his letter with specific applications to specific people on how they can respond to God and make Christ Lord of their life in all areas of their life. We talked about how wives are meant to submit to their husbands. We've talked about how husbands are called to love their wives. Later, we're going to see how even servants are meant to obey their masters. But today, God's word through Paul is going to talk about children and how even children can honor Christ as Lord by the way that they live their life. And even though this is going to be a message that is going to be about children and what children should do, we have a responsibility as a church family to disciple children and to help them know that this is going to be the way that they honor Christ in their life. Based on what God is going to have to say in Colossians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. So based on that context, based on that exposition of the letter as a whole, let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Read silently while I read out loud. Paul says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, verse 21, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. The first thing that we should notice about these two verses, it's actually quite amazing, is that verse 20 of Colossians chapter 3 is not Paul talking about children. Make that very clear. Verse 23 is not a verse about children. Verse 20 is a verse written to children about what they should do. Imagine the power of that, that the creator of the galaxies... In his supernatural word, the only copy of supernatural words that we have in existence, that God himself would choose to speak to children. That's what's happening in verse 20. The same grammar is being used to address children that is used to address wives and to address husbands in the two verses previously. We often forget that God's word is truly also for kids as well. We also forget that the church, the local church, is something that God has designed and intended for children. Local churches, I've noticed, tend to make one of two mistakes when it comes to handling kids in ministry. Two extremes that I've found. One extreme is that they want children to be totally separated from everything that happens with adults at church. 
They'll come up with every children's program, every kind of childlike place for them to be, almost a glorified version of babysitting. That way, kids don't have to be in the same room as adults for anything church-related. There's a total separation is one extreme that many local churches will do. But another extreme, and it's one that's become more popular, I'll admit, but it's one we also have to be aware of, is churches will embrace this idea of having kids be part of church, and ironically, they will remove children's programs. They'll they'll just get rid of Sunday school. They'll get rid of children's church. They'll get rid of VBS, and they'll say, no, we're going to have the children be part of worship service on Sunday, thinking that they're somehow fulfilling God's intention for children in church. But then when they do so, they never preach to the kids. They never acknowledge the kids. They they, they never do anything that they are doing as a church in a way that acknowledges that kids are there also meaning to benefit from it. Unlike Paul, who's using his letter to the Colossians to actually address children, some churches will claim that they're all about kids and they want kids to be included in service. Yet they pretend like they're not there when they show up on Sunday morning at 9 and 10.30. So because Paul is actually in this verse choosing to address children, I'm actually going to take a moment in my sermon to also address children today. Kids, if there are any teenagers or kids or young children who you're sitting here this morning, I want you specifically to know that church is for you. This is not just something for your parents. This is not just something that you are meant to endure while the rest of us adults focus on something else. This church is a place where you can learn to follow Christ. God doesn't want you to wait until you're older to choose to follow him. He wants you to make that choice today. He doesn't want you to choose later whether or not you should obey Christ or take Christ seriously in your life. That's a desire that God has for you right now as a 7-year-old or an 11-year-old or a 16-year-old. God wants that heart of obedience and faith. He wants that relationship with you right now. And this church is a place where you can experience that. You may be asking yourself, well, how do I do that? Maybe kids in the room are wondering, how do I have a relationship with Jesus? Well, it's very easy. It's three steps. Number one, kids, you need to realize that you're a sinner. You can never reach God's standard of holiness that he desires, that he commands to be in his presence after death in heaven. You fall short of that. But praise be to God, God loved you so much that he sent a substitute for you, that he became man in his son Jesus Christ to live a perfect life on your behalf, to fulfill his righteous demands. And he also died a sinner's death for you as a substitute to take the punishment that you deserve. And that if you in your heart believe that the only way that you can go to heaven is by depending on the substitute of Jesus on your behalf, And if you call out to God and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Savior and Lord of your life, Romans 10.9 says that you will be saved. And you don't have to reach a certain age to do that. You can do that today because this church is for you. But in the same way, if you have done that, kids, if you have done that, children, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you believe that you're going to go to heaven when you die because of Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, You also need to know this. If you are a Christian, you have a responsibility to display Christ in your actions. That's not just something for you to do once you turn 18. If you're saved by Jesus now as a kid, you're expected as a kid to honor and worship him with your lives. 
in everything that you do. And this verse is given by God for you children so that you know exactly how to do that. So this all brings us actually to the first point, which is a very simple point that comes directly from verse 20, which is that children, you honor Christ as Lord by obeying your parents. Your first point is that children honor Christ as Lord by obeying their parents in everything. The children in Colossae who would have heard Paul's letter and received Paul's letter and expected to obey Paul's letter, the way that God tells them to fulfill Colossians 3.17, to do everything in the name of the Lord, the way that they do that is by obeying their parents. The question is, is what is obedience? Obedience is not just an action. Obedience is something that comes from the heart and is displayed both in action and in attitude. It's why in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, in the Ten Commandments, when God gives the first commandment for children to obey their parents, he describes it as honoring their parents in Exodus 20, verse 12. The point is not just you're doing the bare minimum of what's told to you. Obedience means that you listen attentively to your parents, that when they ask something of you, that you respond immediately. But you not only respond immediately and in the way that they asked, but you also do it with a cheerful heart, that you do it with honor and with respect and with love towards your parents. That's a way that you love your neighbor kids. You can love your neighbor as yourself and honor God by loving your parents, by being respectful to your dad and saying, yes, sir, and getting him the things he needs when he asks for it, by telling your mom that you love her and helping her when she asks for help. These things honor your parents by treating them with love and respect, and those things are a part of what biblical obedience is. This is not just something for the Old Testament that is outdated. Jesus repeated this command. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 10, or I'm sorry, in Mark chapter 7, verse 10, Jesus reaffirms the need for children to honor their father and their mother. He even repeats the Old Testament promise that comes with it, that whoever reviles his father or mother will surely die. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 19, Jesus describes honoring your father and your mother as loving your neighbor as yourself. Kids, you need to know this, that if you claim to be a Christian and if you claim to love God, the reality of whether or not you love God is displayed in how you love your parents. That's what God's Word says, that the way that you obey and follow Christ as Lord of your life is shown in whether or not you obey your parents as the authorities that God has placed in your life. That is what God expects of you. If you roll your eyes and, and make noises every time your parents ask you of something, that's as if you are doing that to God. If you are slow to listen and you'd rather focus on what you want to do instead of what your parents want you to do, that reflects the same kind of heart that will do the same to the Lord. But look at the second half of verse 20. Unlike the Old Testament, or maybe some angry parents who say that if you don't obey me, you'll die, verse 20 replaces the negative promise with a positive promise. It says that children should obey their parents 
in everything, for this pleases the Lord. That word please is such an important biblical word, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was a kind of word described, uh, used to describe sacrifices given to God. If a sacrifice was given to God by faith and in accordance to what he has commanded, the Bible would say that that sacrifice was pleasing to the Lord. This is identical to the word that is used in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where we are called to live our lives, similar to Colossians 3.17, as an act of worship and submission to the Lord, that everything we should do, uh, the, that we should present our bodies as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable. That word acceptable is the same word for pleasing. Except holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Children, when you obey your parents, you are worshiping God. You're not worshiping your parents as if they are gods. They are sinners and people that need God's forgiveness, just like you do. But because they are the authorities placed in your life, when you honor your parents, you are honoring the Lord that you claim to follow. This is God's will for your life, children, for you to honor him by honoring your parents. But now let's look at the second point. Because Paul, in his command that children obey their parents, this is an expectation that is laid out not just for the children, but as a responsibility, really, of the entire family. Look at verse 21. Paul continues and says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Fathers, I want to just point something out to you really quickly. This is very interesting in verses 18 through 21. When Paul is giving these commands to wives and husbands and children, every time that God gives a specific command to wives or children, he tells them to do a very specific thing. But in the verse right after that, he addresses the men in the family. And his expectation for men and how they are called to honor Christ is by acting in such a way that equips those in their family to honor Christ. Notice that. So in verse 19, Paul tells husbands, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Why does he tell them that? Because he had just told the wives to submit to their husbands. Husbands honor Christ by making it a joy and a pleasure for their wives to submit under their leadership. And that comes by not being harsh and domineering. In the same way, God's expectation for fathers the way that fathers honor Christ in their fatherhood is by equipping their children to honor Christ. To make sure that the obedience of their children is something that happens not just for their own sake, but so that they may by God in their own lives. That's how God sees fathers, as these shepherds, as these servants, that the way that they honor God is by helping those under them in his family honor Christ. That's why Paul says in verse 21, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. In ancient times, parenting was very self-centered. Some things have never changed, right? Self-centered parenting in ancient times was self-centered because parenting was your retirement plan. You were expected to train your children well because they would inherit what you owned. They would inherit the trades that you had acquired, and they would use that trade and those skills in order to provide for themselves and provide for you in your old age. They would also carry on your legacy. So you had a very high expectation as a parent for your own sake, 
to raise your children well because that would immediately impact you in the future. The problem is is that this kind of self-centered parenting, when you're parenting kids for the benefit of yourself, results in anger. When someone, when a kid is too loud or they're disobedient in such a way that it annoys you and it bothers you, and so what do you do? You react, you blow up, you get frustrated. You respond in such a way that you're not really disciplining them, you're actually just emotionally reacting from your own sinfulness as a result of being sinned against. That is the kind of provoking that Paul is talking about here. The call of a parent is not just to make sure that their children are well-mannered. The call of a parent is to be disciple-makers of their children. You are the shepherds of these little ones. And just like a pastor is called to shepherd a church, moms and dads are called to shepherd their boys and girls that God has lended to them. You have a short amount of time with your kids. And then they're gone. They move to Western Washington. You only see them once or twice a year. They live their own lives. You have a short period of time, not just to treat them, uh, train them to be well-mannered, but to train and disciple them to love and to follow Christ with their lives. This is the opposite of provoking. Provoking is when you always get mad at your kids for what they do wrong, but you never teach them to do right. Provoking is when they don't really love obedience, they just fear punishment from you that comes from their disobedience without any fear of punishment of what might come someday from God. Provoking is when you tell your kids to do one thing and you do the other. Provoking is when you tell your kids to honor you, yet you show no desire at home to honor Christ with your life. This kind of provoking, as we see in the second half of verse 21, results in your children becoming discouraged. That word discouraged is not talking about sad or downtrodden or angry. It literally means to be de-encouraged, that you are, in, you are de-encouraging your kids from obedience. Your job as a parent is to train your kid to love obedience as an act of worship to the Lord, to not make them hate obedience and to hate uh, the consequences that come with disobedience so they just try to avoid that by lying to you but to teach them to love obedience as something that is pleasing to God. That's what provoking means. And just real quick, provoking does not mean that you should be living in fear of your children. Sometimes when you tell your kids no, they throw a fit, and they scream, and they yell at you, and they say that they hate you, and their face gets all red. That does not mean that you are provoking your children. That means that you have given birth to sinners who don't like being told no, and who don't like consequences. Don't use this verse to be manipulated by your children from giving them necessary consequences in love. But make sure that those consequences given in love are used to point them to what it really means to love God and be obedient, which practically displays itself as obedience within the home. In doing so, you encourage them to love and follow Christ with all their heart, soul, and mind. And you don't de-encourage them by making obedience about yourself. So the second point is that fathers help children honor Christ by encouraging them to obey. And this all leads us to the big idea as we close, which is that children honor Christ by honoring their parents. Don't you love it when the big idea is pretty much exactly what the Bible says? That's expositional preaching. So as a church family, 
and as individual families. We should not see children obeying their parents as just a nice, trite example of being obedient. We shouldn't see it as something that we grow out of. We should see obedience to parents as the training ground for obedience to the Lord. We should see it as the practice field where we disciple our children to know and to love Christ and to honor him by teaching them to honor their father and their mother. Because remember this, even Jesus fulfilled the fifth commandment. Even Jesus humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, even the kind of servant who was a little toddler who had to be potty trained, who had to be taught by his father, a carpenter, how to build things, how to set a table, how to do his chores, how to say please and thank you. Jesus himself submitted himself to be trained and taught in obedience so that he could exemplify how he could honor the heavenly father by honoring his earthly father. If even Jesus is willing to do that, children and adults, we also should be willing to honor God in this same way. Pray with me.